Welcome to Exit Strategy. I'm Stephanie Gary, Executive Vice President of Communal Partnerships at Plaza Jewish Community Chapel in New York City, and it's truly my honor to welcome Rabbi Ben Spratt, who is the 11th Senior Rabbi at Congregation Road of Shalom. He is a national voice advancing inclusion issues in Jewish spaces and is co-chair of Inclusion and Disability Awareness for the Central Conference of American Rabbis. In addition, he was the Associate Rabbi of Congregation Road of Shalom and Rabbi-in-Residence for the Road of Shalom School. And most importantly, Rabbi Spratt, you are a dad, a husband, and a wonderful colleague to so many. And also, I have to mention that you are a new board member of Plaza Jewish Community Chapel, so welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It's such an honor and so grateful to be in conversation together. Well, full disclosure, you and I sat down to record a podcast about talking to children about death and helping them through grief on May 2nd. And then on May 24th, the tragic mass shooting that took the lives of 19 young students and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, took place. And here we are. I thank you for coming back on the podcast and for talking with us. In light of this tragedy, we can all use guidance and perspective in this aftermath. And here we are just one week later. So another massacre at another school. Children. Rabbi Spread, how do we begin a conversation with our own children about such an event like this? Do we initiate the conversation? Do we wait? What do we do? I'm so grateful, not only that we get to have this conversation, Stephanie, but grateful that you bring such intention to make sure that the right kind of conversation can unfold. And I think for some of us, we are looking at our children with very different ages. My son is nine, my daughter's 13, and the kinds of conversations they want to have are radically different from one another. Mm -hmm. And that's also what makes things so complicated is not only is each child different, but also each conversation is different. I happen to have a very inquisitive nine-year-old son who is connected to enough friends who have unlimited access to the internet that he is often more aware of what's going on in the world than I am and is often the one to initiate. My daughter, less so. So I think some of this is acknowledging that those of us as parents who believe that we are always going to be the ones deciding when to have these conversations, we probably need to put a little pin in that and set that idea aside because the reality is our children are having access to things at a far earlier age than any prior generation. That also puts some responsibility on us to be ready for the conversation when it begins. Yeah. For me personally, I believe that it is helpful to frame and initiate conversations so that when they get additional information, they have some scaffolding in which to absorb it, rather than hear the often emotional outbursts of some of their peers that may have facts mixed with some mythology that make it much more complicated after the fact. So in general, I always encourage after tragedy for parents to be the ones to initiate the conversation, simply to be able to give the structures of stability and a space for feelings. You know, you mentioned parents, and parents are going through their own anxieties 
And it's so hard for that not to rub off on children as, as much as we all try. What advice can you provide to parents just to help minimize their own anxiety? I think it starts by acknowledging that we don't have the words for each other right now. I don't know about you, but I can't pretend that over this past week, I've come up with some fabulous words that make everything feel better, uh, less scary, less terrifying, less infuriating. And so I think in some ways, it's allowing us and acknowledging that that is not what we're going to accomplish. We are not going to come up with words that make this all better. So when we are sitting with our children to be able to, in some ways, see our primary goal as ensuring a space of trust they can have with us. When we lift up words and platitudes meant to help them feel better and safer, it can make them feel, in the end, actually like they can't trust in their own feelings. For example, my son sat with me and said he feels scared to go to school. Right. And if my response to that is, oh, school's totally safe, you have no reason to be afraid, either he's going to come away feeling like his feelings of fear are wrong, that there's a reason that he shouldn't have any reason to feel afraid, or he's going to come away believing that I'm lying to him and then not able to trust the space we've created. And so instead, I think it's figuring out how do we begin in those conversations with validating feeling, even as we then try to create information and structure that can help contain those feelings in a way that feels appropriate. I'm curious to know if you think children can absorb that we as parents don't always have the answers. They come to us. They look to us for that answer. Can they understand that sometimes we just don't know? I hope so. Because if not, what are we left with? Faking it until we make it, perhaps? I think sometimes when we pretend or allow our children to believe that we have all the answers, it only opens ourselves up for more painful conversations later on. Because if we suggest that in a world that is sometimes filled with chaos and tragedy, that we somehow know how justice is meted out or why this one bad thing happened here and didn't happen somewhere else, they can come to realize that we were lying all along. This comes back to this idea of how do we create a space of trust and it's being honest when we don't know. As a fellow parent in this world, I wish I could somehow make my children walk through this world without any reason to fear. I wish I could walk through this world without any reason to fear. Yes. And maybe this is one of the challenges to that famous Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav quote, you know, that the entire world is a narrow bridge and the essence of it all is not to be afraid. And I'm not sure that I really believe that's possible. I wonder instead if it's the question of how do we not be paralyzed by that fear? How do we allow that fear to become an energy that moves us forward rather than holds us back? God, of course comes into this conversation. How does God and faith play in this conversation for you when you are talking to others? Because I've heard it several times, where was God? Where was God? So how do we answer that? So for me growing up, God was often discussed as the causal energy, the reason why things happen, for better or for worse. And in some ways, I almost think that the theology I've come to is looking much more at a God that's found in response, is imagining for me a God that weeps, looking at children, seeing that their halls of learning are no longer bastions of safety. I imagine a God who's lifting up the idea that the whole world 
exists because of the voices of school children engaged in learning. Very famous quote from the Talmud. And so what would God's response to this be? It would be to weep. It would be to grieve. It would be to mourn. And so therefore, for me, I find comfort believing that God is with me in my own tears, in my own fears. I'm in my own struggles coming out of the wake of this tragedy. So interesting because we're all struggling. We all know that we don't have the answers. I'm curious to know, have you heard the question, am I going to die too? What happens to us when we die? Where do you go with that? What I love about it is it's the kind of question that also invites wisdom because it means that a child has been thinking about it. And in general, the great rabbinic move is to open the question up to see where their thinking is at. And often our desire, my desire, is to try to just give the answer that takes us out of the scary conversation that makes us uncomfortable. But in so doing, we shut down and really powerful potential for exploration. So I always would encourage inviting the question back, well, I'm not totally certain. What do you think? You know, here's what some other people have lifted up, but we don't all have agreement on it. So where do you think? Where do you think God is in this? Where do you think happens after we die? Whatever responses come forward, there's the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper. Because what I love about talking about death is that it invariably has lessons for us about life. You know, it's that famous quote from Ecclesiastes, you know, better to walk into a house of mourning than into a house of celebration. For in the former, there is a lesson of life to be learned. And I really think that comes out in these conversations. And so the more we can offer a space to hear what's beneath the question, the ideas that have rippled forward, and to almost validate that search and exploration as one that we're on as well, creates the sense that I and we can come away thinking about the implications of life and living. I love that you said this is a rabbinic move. I'm going to remember that a rabbinic move, and a good one, I might add. Children, and much to what you're saying, they love direct, simple answers. We all do. But I think it allows the child to really absorb and understand the moment more. When they are bombarded with social media, the news, it's overwhelming. I know it's overwhelming for me. And to see these news reports with the children reliving the story again and again, it's really difficult to watch. So how do we help parents navigate this reality to keep children's perspectives, if you will, on the healthier side? Are there signs of trauma that we should be mindful of? What should we be looking for? For me, one of the things that I encourage is trying to minimize contact with televised broadcasts and things, primarily because there's a lot of sensationalization that's woven in and framed even around tragedy. And unfortunately, what that can do is amplify this sense of real tragic terror and amplify it to a national scale, amplify it so that it's felt in every single space. And it makes it harder to be able to find one's own personal experience of what's going on. In minimizing, I actually want to bring forward um, a helpful lesson, actually, that I sit in a lot that comes from the Talmud. And for me, it's a lesson about how as a parent and maybe as a rabbi as well, that I need to approach the people around me. There's this famous story where Rabbi Elazar was a person who was struggling and he was weeping, lying alone in the dark. 
And one of his study partners, one of his friends, Rabbi Yochanan, comes and actually visits him and sees that Rabbi Elzar is there weeping in the darkness. And he says, why are you crying? And instead of waiting for a response, he comes up with suggestions. Is it because you fear you haven't done enough learning in your life? Is it because you've struggled so much and you're struggling to have enough to eat? And then finally give space for Rabbi Elzar to respond. And Rabbi Elzar says, I'm weeping because all of the beauty of this world will one day disappear. And Rabbi Yochanan then stopped asking questions and stopped trying to offer answers. And then simply validated and said, then you have good reason to weep. And so then he sits down and the two of them weep together. And then he says to Rabbi Yochanan, says to Rabbi Elzar, give me your hand. And then he gave him his hand and then he raised them up. And I love this story because for me, it reminds me that one of the most important things we can do is simply create space for our children. I think one of the best questions we can ask is, what have you heard and how does it make you feel? And in that way, we're allowing them to be the provider of information. So we then know how to respond to the information and we're letting them lead the emotional feelings. So we then know how to help validate those feelings and put them into a better scaffolding. Again, I think sometimes we're so uncomfortable with seeing our kids scared and upset. We rush in to try to put labels. Oh, you must be feeling this way. Oh, this must be what you need to hear. And sometimes it's putting them in the driver's seat and simply sitting with them and being emotional with them for a moment where they can realize that at least in that moment, they're not alone. And when they're not alone in their feelings, then you've got some firm ground to build a new structure forward on. And what if they say, I don't want to go back to school. I'm scared. Somebody called 911 and nobody helped. What do we say to them? And I think that's when we can lift up some of the things that they've grown up with, they weren't even aware of necessarily, that are intended for their own safety, to talk about some of the protocols of the school, to talk about some of the reasons why we're thoughtful about when we're walking into different spaces and who we're with and who we talk to. My kids happen to go to a school that has security. And, you know, I think my impulse with them growing up was to want them not to notice the security and not to ask about the security. But there's a real helpful time now to lift up. This is why we have security. This is why your teachers do X, Y, and Z. And what it helps show them is that the people in their life, their adults, their faculty, their school administration are all thinking about their safety and trying to build the safest space as possible. Isn't that amazing? You are so right. There was a time where we said, just don't even pay attention to the security guards. Pretend like they're not here. And now how the table has turned. It's pretty amazing. You know, Jewish ritual around death has, of course, a very, very deep value for adults who are grieving. Is there any way that we can share those benefits with children to comfort them? Is that possible? I think so. I hope so. I love a couple of the rituals that surround uh, death and grief. Certainly one is the idea that when we are grieving and when we're at a loss, community and connection is one of the most important elements that how we respond to loss. Yes. And whether it's having people come to us, like in a shiva, or whether it's us going to a community, like saying Kaddish in a synagogue, the idea is how do we make sure we're not alone in these times of heartbreak? And so I think that's something that we can model is how when we see tragedy in the world, how can we not retreat from the world, but instead 
model for our children how do we step into the world, into community, into connection, so we see we can hold those feelings together. And another one is this idea that in grief, really we're supposed to let those who are grieving be the ones to initiate conversation. At least in the spheres that I'm in, often we've dropped that custom. Yes. <laughs> but I do think there's something really profound in it mm-hmm. to acknowledge that in a time of grief, our task is to create space for the most heartbroken, not to put them in the position of having to deal with our own struggles to find the right words. And so to also model for our children that sometimes there are no right words. And sometimes the most important thing we can do is simply be present, to simply just hold space and be together. And it might be just sitting together and hugging each other. It might be simply taking a walk and holding each other's hands. But it is, again, finding those nonverbal ways to indicate that connectedness is our most important response to a world of tragedy and uncertainty, and that sometimes our impulse to try to find words actually can do violence and harm to that feeling of connection. We want our children to know they can trust their own feelings, and we want our children to know that they can trust us. And that might mean we have to let them know we don't have the answers. That might mean we have to let them know that actually they have reason sometimes to feel scared or angry and that they can be with us in those feelings. And the great news there is that we can find support and love from our community members and we don't stop trying to find the right answers. And I think there's a great lesson in that for sure. Before I let you go, any books that you can recommend that we can share with our audience that would be helpful? One of the ones that I go back to again and again is a book called The Tale of uh, Freddy the Falling Leaf. And it's a book that goes back several decades. What I appreciated is it puts the idea of death into the natural cycles of the universe. And it recounts the growth of a particular leaf, Freddy. Freddie witnesses all of these other leaves that at various moments change color and fall off the branch and then end up becoming reabsorbed into the earth to help foster new growth. It is a book that takes death and puts into the natural cycles of life and living in the universe. And what's helpful about it is it allows us to have our children look up and see that sometimes the wisdom they need is right all around them. Mm-hmm. And we can see signs of death all around us in this world But there's also beauty in that. And there's beauty in the cycles that exist. And even in the face of tragedy, even in the moments where we can see leaves that are ripped off trees before they have the chance to fully live out their life cycle, nonetheless, we get to see that there is power and impact they have on the world and the beauty they bring and the energy they create and especially how we respond to it. And so if I was going to recommend one book above all others, it's really that one as a way of opening a kind of conversation that can both make death a little less scary, a little more natural, and give us some vocabulary that helps our children feel validated in their feelings and fears. Good to know. I have to get that book. I'm not familiar with it. Thank you, Rabbi Spratt. Thank you for your wisdom and for providing a bit of a framework for us as we move through this very, very challenging time. I so appreciate your time. Such an honor. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Really appreciate it. As the host of Exit Strategy, I thank you for listening in to what I hope was an informative and illuminating conversation about this end-of-life issue. I urge you to visit our show notes, and there's an email listed there, so if you have any questions, send them my way. In the meantime, please share this episode with anyone you know 
who may be interested and subscribe to Exit Strategy. Wherever you listen to your podcasts each month, we'll renew our conversation with another topic, and I'm really happy you're along for the ride. I'm Stephanie Gary, and this is Exit Strategy. Exit Strategy.